Okay, good evening, everybody. Special thank you to Isaac for setting everything up and arranging the sushi for this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you to Tor Anytime for sharing this shir and many others with people who are not able to make it this evening. So, Tiskul Mitzvos. The topic this evening is Great Expectations. By a show of hands, who had to read this book in high school? <laughs> the truth is, I don't really remember it that well. I just have this like, very disturbed feeling when I think of the book. Not a feel-good book. But I like to speak about great expectations. The, uh, the first source here is an article from the BBC News that uh, shares with us surprising and really tragic, staggering numbers. That in the last 17 years, this is data from 1999 through 2016, there has been an increase in suicide across the country by 25%. In some states, it's up to 30%. That means 16 out of every 100,000 Americans will take their own life. In the year 2016 alone, more than 45,000 Americans committed suicide. That's more than people who died in car crashes. Car crashes, somewhere over 37,000, but more than 45,000 Americans couldn't stand living, therefore the only option they felt they had was to end their life. Again in 2016, this is based on um, the CDC, 2017 rather, more than 70,000 Americans passed away from drug overdose. And those who are in the, the field of addiction or the mental health field, these numbers are not new, but again, they're staggering. 70,000 people dying from overdose. According to a report conducted by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the insurance company, they saw in 2016 there is a steady increase of diagnosis as a major depression, going up 33% from only three years prior in 2013. So what's happening in the world? What's changing? How is it possible that the rate of suicide has, has skyrocketed 25% in the last 13 years? And, and the general answer is we don't know. Sociologically speaking, I'm sure there are many, many factors involved with trends and, and how we view ourselves and life and technology. But I do want to explore how expectations can play a role in our overall sense of well-being, in our overall sense of simcha sachayim, of our joy in life. My theory is, that having great expectations in some areas of life can be <laughs> devastating, and having great expectations in other areas of life are necessary for greatness. If you were to ask any child in elementary school, what is the Jewish view of being happy? So hopefully they would quote you the mission in Perkyavos, the very beginning of the fourth parak. Ezehu Ashir Hasameach Bechelko. Who is the wealthy man, the one who is happy with what he has? That's Simcha, being content, not needing more, 
the Tferis Yisrael explains that Mishnah, he says, we know that when we're striving for something and then we achieve it, we feel good. We feel simcha. If I'm trying to do something or to acquire something, and I have sipuk, I'm satisfied with the little bit that I have from Hashem, I view it as a blessing, then that means I've reached what I was going for, I have a hasaga, I have a grasp of my expectation, and I'm mole simcha, I'm filled with joy. On the other hand, if I keep on wanting more than I have, and I'm keep on, I keep on reaching for things that are beyond my grasp, then I'm never content, and I'm always miserable. That's the basic, simple definition of simcha. Not getting what we want, but more wanting what we have. Simcha sachayim. So it's a pretty simple equation. If I want to be happy, that means I should not want more than what I presently have. Sounds pretty straightforward. However, we want a lot. And there's a lot that we don't have that we want more of. What I'd like to do briefly is explore four reasons why we want things. Four reasons why we have greater expectations. And that will inevitably lead to some level of disappointment or a lack of simcha sechayim. Reason number one. I deserve more than this. I deserve more than this. This week's Parsha, we know we have the famous episode of Nadav and Avihu. And they bring the Eish Zar, the foreign fire, into the Mishkan. And there's a Midrashic source that tells us, Rabbi Levi Amar, Shechotzim Hayu. Nadav and Avihu, although they were the Gedoli Hador, they were the greatest of the generation, Shechotzim Hayu, which means they were Balei Gaiva. They had a little bit of arrogance. How so? Harbei noshem hayu yoshvos agunos mamtinos lehem. There were many young ladies waiting to marry them. And their father would come to them and say, you know, I had a nice shidduch offer. Maybe you want to try to go out with Chaim. He's a nice boy. No, 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 Tati. I'm waiting for Nadav or Avihu. Many women were waiting for Nadav and Avihu. They themselves, though, never got married. Why not? Mahayu Omrim, what did they say? Achiyavinu Melech, the brother of our father, Moshe Rabbeinu, he's the king, he's the leader. Achiyamenu Nasi, the brother of our mother, is a, is a, is a tribal leader. Nachshon ben Aminadov. Avinu Kohen Gadol. And our father, Aaron, he's a Kohen Gadol. Ve'onu Shnei Sagane Kahuna. And we're like the next in line. We're his right-hand man. Ezo Isha Hogenis Lanu. Who would be someone that's really fit for somebody like me? No one's going to be good enough. And that's why they never got married. According to this particular source, this was their major sin. Why did they die when they brought the foreign fire into the Mishkan? It wasn't the action of bringing in the foreign fire, but it was this attitude. 
It was causing these girls indirect pain because a little bit of arrogance. No one's going to be good enough for me. I'm too picky. He needs to be the best guy in the yeshiva. Okay. If they actually had wives, imagine how history would have been so drastically different. Right? Nadav's getting dressed in the morning, putting on his special big day kahuna, and he's bringing something with him. Honey, what do you have over there? I'm bringing a, an offering. This is a, an exciting day. We're going together. Who told you to do this? Nobody, but we think it's a good idea. Honey, don't bring the Eshazar and the Mizbeach. Trust me on this one. And they would have lived. Sometimes I, I can't find the right person because I feel that I'm too much the right person. And that's not to say, chas v'shalom, oh, they've been dating for so long, it must be they're so picky. No, that's not the equation. There are many, many hundreds of reasons why a person could be dating. Sadly, unfortunately, we have it for years and years and sometimes even decades. So you can never look at someone and judge, oh, it must be they're overly picky. But for ourselves, we have to remind ourselves, I might think I'm a great person and I do have nice qualities, but there are many people out there that could be matim, that could work. Don't be so picky. I deserve more. That led them not to get married at all. We're, we're learning right now in Shmuel Beis, the half hour before Mincha, one of the, the most tragic episodes in the, in the whole Sefer Shmuel, where Avshalom is, is beginning his rebellion against his father, David HaMelech. And he was an ambitious young man, and he was a very talented and charismatic person. And he was able to have all of Kalal Yisrael love him and admire him. And then the Pasuk tells us, There was nobody as beautiful as Avshalom in all of Yisrael. From the bottom of his feet to his head, lo haya mum. There was not one blemish. Tzadik HaKohen says it doesn't just mean that he was really handsome, but lo haya mum, he had no blemish spiritually. He was a giant. He was a spiritual master. But why is it talking about the way he looked? There is an indication, lo haya ish Yisrael. The Radak says... This was the prelude to his rebellion. What was he thinking? Why was he trying to get all these Jewish people to rebel against his father? Right? The holy David HaMelech. What, what are you doing, Avshalom? You could trust your father that he's the Melech Yisrael. And he is taking care of the people. And he is judging fairly. And if he's going to choose Shlomo over you, then that's all, all Pidibor. That's based on Hashem's instructions. Why are you starting this whole civil war? Says the Radak, Magarim Lozeh, what caused this taiva, this desire to become the king and take over the throne of his dad? Kihaya Yofa, because he was so beautiful. And he had that arrogance. So, what we see, and these are two sources, but there are many others, when we have Gaiva, 
When we have a sense of I'm deserving more because of my qualities or my talents, gaiva leads to taiva. Then I become desirous. If it's of more power, if it's of more prestige, if it's of anything in the world, the more I feel I'm deserving, then the more taiva I have and the more destruction that could lead to. I think when it comes to dealing with children as parents or educators, and everyone speaks about self-esteem. We need to build kids up, and that's true, and we can't say it enough. But we have to be careful. Self-esteem can never be that I'm telling you you're deserving of more than they are because of your qualities or because of your talents. To the contrary, the goal of education or the goal of being a parent is to try to show them through example and to teach them we're willing to give up for others. We're willing to sacrifice for others. It's not you're so special and therefore you deserve more than she does. That's not Torah Chinuch. That's not proper education. So that's reason number one why we want more than we have is because we feel we're deserving of more because we're so incredibly special. Reason number two is based on a verse in Mishle. Shlomo HaMelech writes, Mayim genuvim yimtaku, that stolen waters are sweet, velechem sesarim yinom, and the bread that's eaten in secret, that has a pleasant taste. So he's talking about water and bread, right? The bare bones, the basics. Explains the Malbim. The, the intent of Shlomo HaMelech in this verse is to show us, I'd rather have water than, than a fine bottle of wine as long as the water is stolen. As long as it has that sweetness that I know I'm not really allowed to have this. I'd rather eat stale bread than a fine steak as long as I'm doing it in secret. I'm doing something not really allowed to be doing because that makes it taste better. When I can't have something, it becomes more attractive. When you tell me, it's usser, you can't go there. I want nothing more in the world than just to peek behind the curtain. What's going on over here? Why is it so usser? That happens to be part of the brilliance of the system of nida in marriage. It creates a sense of mayim genuvim. It creates a reality of stolen waters within the sanctity of a, of a, of a marriage relationship. Where does this come from? Where does this desire to have something that I can't really have come from? It goes back to the beginning of time. When the Nochash engages Chava, he starts off by saying something that's it's a, strange, a strange line we don't pay much attention to. But the, the Pasuk tells us that the, the snake approaches Chava and he says, The Yomer Isha. Is it true that Hashem said, you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees of the garden? And she says back, no, just this particular one. But why is he starting off saying something that's obviously not true? Explains the Orachayim, a novel approach. Basically, we know the Nachash represents the Yetzirah. Right? That's our animal inclination. That voice in the back of her head was telling her, because you can't have this one tree, 
It's as if you can't have anything. That's what the Yetzirah was saying. V'zohi hamida asher misnaheg bag Yetzirah im hanishmoim lo. Explains the Orachayim. This was not limited to the Nachash speaking and trying to seduce Chava. But this is every battle that we face every day of our lives. We have the Nachash. We have that Yetzirah, the back of our head, telling us. Right? Everything you have is worthless. All of the pleasure you have, it's really not that great. All of these amazing opportunities you have, they're really worthless because you don't have that. Right? Because you're lacking that one thing, everything else I have becomes, eh, it's not so great. Not so great. If I can't have this one thing, somehow my vision becomes clouded and I'm not happy with anything. Where do we see this expressed? In Haman. Right? The famous line where Haman comes back to his family and he's sharing with his wife and his sons all of the glory and the grandeur and the fact that Esther's making a big party. But then he says, But all of this, all of the kavod, all of the prestige, all of the respect that I'm getting and I'm loving, it's all worthless. As long as I see Mordechai, that Jew, that one guy that's not willing to bow down and give me the proper respect, everything else means nothing. And that's why Rabbi Aaron Cutler said famously, right, with the Gemara in Chulin, asked the question, Haman min Torah minayin. Where do we see a reference? Where do we see an allusion to Haman from the Torah itself? The Gemara answers, Hamin ha'etz. And that's the line where Hashem, speaking to Adam, Hamin ha'etz from the tree that I told you not to eat from. Did you consume that fruit? That's the reference to Haman. Hamin ha'etz. Hey, mem nun. Okay, we see the same three letters, and that does spell out Haman. But what's the connection? What's that deeper kesher between the Eitz Hadas, the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge, and who Haman was, his essence, his personality? Explains of Aaron Cutler, the exact same reason that Haman lost everything, because he wasn't able to appreciate everything he had because there was one thing standing in his way. That's what took place with the sin of the Eitz Hadas. Chava couldn't have any pleasure from any other tree as long as this one was off limits. There's something called FOMO. Right? FOMO, fear of missing out. So in a sense, many of us suffer from the fear of missing out things that we don't have, and therefore we can't fully appreciate everything we do have. When do we feel this the most? When do we really have this, this taiva that I need that one thing that's off limits? I think we suffer from this the most when we forget that we're in the shama. When we forget that really, we're a soul. Really, I'm not bound to this place. Really, I don't care so much about olam hazeh. But when I lose focus on that, and it's all about the here and now, and it's all about grabbing as much as I possibly can because I will not be here forever. It's like when you're coming late to a wedding and they're about to close the shmorg and you haven't eaten all day. 
So what do you do before saying mazel tov to anybody? You grab the plate, you grab a fork. Is there any more Chinese chicken left? Right? Is there any more ginger ale something? It doesn't have to be real ginger ale. It can be beramayim chayim, anything. Trying to grab as much as possible before they close the shmorg. When our, when our view of life is this is all we have, and there is no nitzchias, there's no eternity, it's not more than the here and now, then we feel that, that need to have everything, even those things we can't have. There's a story in the Medrash. The Medrash uh, says there is a, a man who was very wealthy, and he made a massive party. And he invited, I'm not sure why he invited him, but he invited Rebbe Dostoy. So Rebbe Dostoy says that he told me that I'm welcome to come. So I came along. And when I arrived at this person's suda, I saw his lavish banquet. It wasn't lacking anything. He had imported wines and whiskeys and scotch, you name it. Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on this, on this whole beautiful parade. However, the Baal Simcha, the person throwing the party, he was super upset. And he said, where are the, the African nuts? Where are the African nuts? And he's looking around, going through all the different delicacies and the nuts from Cuba and Costa Rica. Well, where are the African nuts? And it turns out they forgot to bring them. They didn't arrive yet. So says the Medrash, what did he do? He took all of the marble tables and he threw them over and he started yelling and screaming. He says, this whole thing is worthless. What a waste of time and effort. No African nuts. Everybody go home. And this is what he said to Rabbi Dostoy. Atem omrim sholom hazeh shalonu. You tell us that this world is ours. This belongs to the, the rest of humanity. And you Jews, you, you reside in Olam Haba. And therefore, if we can't eat now, what are we going to eat? If we can't eat now, when are we going to eat? Meaning to say, if my whole perspective in this world is, let me grab as much as I can, let me get as much pleasure as possible, then yeah, if I'm missing the African nuts, that could throw me totally out of my equilibrium. And I can't have any joy from this whatsoever. You see, oftentimes, as people get older, and they're retired, and they're into their sunset years, what do we do now? What do we do? So there, there are really two approaches. As mortality begins to dawn on human beings, right, as we can no longer live in that, in that denial that, hey, we're here forever, no need to think about our eventual passing, once we're well beyond that, and we're living with that reality that I'm not here forever, then there's a sense of urgency. Where does that urgency take me? That depends on who I am. It could take me in one of two very different directions. It could either be, We gotta eat and drink because tomorrow we're gonna die quickly. I've never seen the Caribbean. Let's go! I've never been to Indonesia. You don't wanna go to Indonesia? No, 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 I wanna go to Indonesia! Okay? And traveling could be a beautiful thing. 
But if my sense of urgency is just let me grab as much as I can before they take away the shmorg, it's not going to lead to real meaning. It's not going to lead to real simcha sachayim. If my sense of urgency, though, compels me, let me give as much as possible. Let me contribute as much as possible. Let me, let me be engaged in, in spirituality and ruchnius in trying to inspire others. Then we'll see that urgency leads to meaning and that leads to real pleasure. So either I deserve more and therefore I'm always wanting and having greater expectations, or I'm looking for the things I can't have because mayim and genuvim yimtaku, the stolen waters are so sweet. Or the third thing is, I've always had this. It's hergal. It's, it's just, I'm accustomed to living like this. And therefore, not to have what I'm used to having, then I feel like I'm lacking. We find this in the halacha of giving tzedakah. How much, ideally, should we give to every poor person? What's the mitzvah of tzedakah? So the Rambam tells us, source number 13, Whatever he's lacking, you have to be mashlim. You have to complete him. And that means if he doesn't have clothing, make sure he has clothing. If he doesn't have food, doesn't have a home, get him food. Buy him a home. If he's not married, try our best to get him married. If she's not married, try our best to get her married. That's part of the mitzvah of tzedakah, when we're able to make a shidduch. And then he says, based on the Gemara and Ksubis, Afilu hayadarko shel ani lirko valasus. Even if you have a guy that's down and out, but in his heyday, five years ago, when, when the stock market was going well and he was flying high, what he would do is he would ride on a horse and he would have a servant run in front of him. That was his level of, of prestige. But now, Nebuch, he lost everything. What is our obligation of tzedakah? Not just to get him some basic food and drink and shelter, but to get him back to what he was accustomed to. Get that man a horse. Get that man an evid to run, th- to run in front of him. That's what he needs because that was his hair goal. Now, practically speaking, we can't do that to everybody, and therefore we do as much as we can. Repinchas, uh, Pinchas Scheinberg, his yard site's coming up in a few days. So he, he grew up in America, and then he married the daughter of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman. Ever read the book, the book All for the Boss? Wonderful book. If you have not read it, I highly encourage you to get it on Amazon. You could borrow it from someone. All for the Boss. And that was actually written by the daughter of Rabbi Scheinberg about her grandfather, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman. He was uh, one of the, the great Torah personalities in America. And he had his eye on uh, little Chaim Pinchas as he was growing up. And when he was about 18, 19, he wanted to make a shidduch between Rav Scheinberg and his daughter. He also encouraged Rav Scheinberg to go to Europe and learn in the mirror. Now that was kamat unheard of. To have someone go from America it was one thing if you were 16, 17, you were a bachar, you were single. Then to make the schlep and go to Europe and learn for a couple of years in one of the, the bastions of Torah, some people did that. But to go now with your young wife 
and you're both accustomed to the American way of life, which basically means plumbing and electricity, <laughs> to now go to the mirror in Poland, you're sacrificing everything. But he went, together with his Rebetzin, and they lived there for five years. Likely a lot of his godless, a lot of his greatness came from those five years of uninterrupted study. But the way they speak about it, if you ever read from Scheinberg or from the Rebetzin, it was a massive transition. And obviously, it was a lot harder for them than it was for people living in Poland their whole lives. We're coming from America. We're spoiled. So a third reason why we want and need more is very simply, if I've had it in the past, I assume and expect it for the future. Remember a few years ago, my brother showed me a, uh, like a three-minute clip of a little, little girl, probably three or four years old, getting her eyesight for the first time. You know, Baruch Hashem, they have many of these things now with technology, and there are certain types of issues that can be corrected through surgery. And it shows it that she had a whole bandage around her face, and she's sitting there, and there's the doctor next to her, and her mother and father, and an older brother. And they're slowly taking off the, the, the bandages, and then you see it as it actually gets to her eye. They take it off, and you see she, her eyes are open, and she sees mom and dad for the first time in her life. And her expression was just like, Mommy! <laughs> Daddy! She was relishing that ability to see, to see the people that she loved more than anything in the world, to see the people who were taking care of her her whole life. Koach and we say the bracha every day, Pokeach Ivrim, you open our eyes, you give us the ability to see, you give us vision. What life would be like without vision, it's so drastically different, but it's so hard to appreciate it when we haven't been there. So oftentimes we, we, we don't have the gratitude, we don't have the, the amazement of what we're experiencing because we've always experienced. The fourth and final reason why we might be expecting something or wanting something is because everyone else has it. Classic line from a teenager. Everyone in my class has this. Trust me. I'm the only person who doesn't. How do you think that makes me feel? Right? Everyone's doing this. Everyone's going here. I'm going to be the only person not going. Tati, come on. If everyone's doing something, then I need to be doing it. That makes it normal, and that creates an expectation. And we have the, the Medrash Rabbah that tells us that Elule Yetzirah, if not for the Yetzirah, and we'll have to see how that phrase is being used in this context, Lo Bona Adam Bayis, a person would not build a home, Lo Nasa Isha, you would never get married, Lo Holid, you would for sure never have children, and you would never engage in business. You wouldn't work. What's the proof to this? It's based on a verse in Kohelet, authored by Shlomo HaMelech. Everything runs on Duncan. No, Shlomo didn't say that. Right? It's a brilliant, brilliant slogan when you think about it. You're selling donuts. Right? And you have a picture of somebody jogging. Right? It's almost like I feel healthy when I'm going to Dunkin' to get a donut because I'm sure it'll be good for me. No, no. Ki hi kinas ish Everything runs on jealousy. 
without jealousy, I would not build a home, I would not get married, I would not have children, I would not work. How can you say that? Jealousy may play a major role in life, but we do believe in the, there are certain needs, right? There are certain instinctual things that, that human beings will do. If it's raining, then we'll try to find the shelter. Even if I wasn't jealous of your house, I would still find the shelter. There is a need for marriage. There is a need for procreation. We have to work. We have to make a parnasa. How can you tell me it's all based on jealousy? So I think the idea here is not, not the jealousy that we commonly think of, where I'm just burning with envy because you have something that I don't. But there's a more basic kina, which is, I look at you, and I look at you, and you, and you, and I look at my neighborhood and my community, and once I see that everyone's doing something, then I need to be doing that same thing. So without any level of kina, without any level of comparing myself to you, I would have some kind of shelter, but I'd be okay with the bare bones. It's only that I see everyone else has a big home, and here I am. I only have six bedrooms, and all my neighbors have at least 13 or 14. We're living like in the slums over here, right? Everything we do, there is the instinctual element to it, but what we need from it if it's a marriage, if it's a family life, if it's a home, that's very much based on what I perceive is normal. If you visit different countries in Africa, you'll have hundreds of thousands of people living in extreme poverty. And many people will live in homes where their walls are made out of mud. All right, and what do they use for a roof? It's also made out of mud or straw that's somehow put together. And then if you're one of the lucky ones, you live in a place where you actually have some metal panels that you have for your roof. How do you feel now, right? You're living large. You're on top of the world. Everyone's looking over at you with that evil eye. Those rich, disgusting snobs. They're metal panels, right? <laughs> Everything is based on what you have and what I have. There was a study where people were asked the following question. If you had two options of how much money you could make, either I can make $50,000 a year and everyone else makes $50,000 a year, or I can make $40,000 a year, but everyone else makes $30,000 a year, what would I prefer? A or B, what do you say? You would say A? You're lying? <laughs> So many people say A, but it seems like when they were actually able to test people's level of, of contentment, if I'm making more than you, this is not real simcha, right? We're going to get to real simcha in a moment, but I feel good because everything's based on what they have and what I have, and if I'm doing a little bit better, then I'm fine. If it's 40 and not 50, I'm okay as long as they have 30. So four reasons why we want more is because we feel we deserve more. Oftentimes, that might be coming from a sense of arrogance. Number two is because mayim genuvim yimtaku, stolen waters are sweet. If I can't have it, I want it that much more. Number three is if uh, there's a hair goal. I've always had this in the past. That becomes my expectation. And number four, if everyone else has this, then by definition, I need it. What's the solution? 
We have all these great expectations, and therefore it's harder to fulfill the mandate of the Mishnah. How is it possible to be happy with what we have when we have all these things pulling us in so many directions? The first solution is something we've read and heard for many, many years. And it's not about the idea, but it's more about the implementation of the idea. If we really take time to focus on the bracha, on the blessings that we have, on the people that we have in our life that enrich our lives, on the relationships that we have that we cherish, on the, on the physical surroundings that I'm zocha to be in, and Baruch Hashem, we live in a time where we, we've never been anything close to this in human history. Everything is, is, is controlled, right? It, it, is it 73 right now? Honey, can you put that to 72? Do you realize how ridiculous that is? When in human history would we ever assume that we'd be able to make sure that my kitchen is 72 degrees and not 73 degrees? I could communicate with people across the globe. I could order anything and everything and have it delivered at my door tomorrow morning. I don't have to leave my house. I don't have to go shopping. I don't have to, I don't have to even talk to you face to face anymore. I don't have to do anything. The level of, of luxury, of, 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 of indulgence, is like we've never imagined. But if we don't appreciate it, and we don't focus on the bracha, then we're always going to want more, and we'll never have that real simcha sachayim. Rebbe Yehuda Leib Diskin, he was one of the, the gedolim of Eretz Yisrael in the 19th century. So he had an elderly aunt who lived in Yerushalayim that he would visit now and again. He was very busy. He had the, the weight of all Klal Yisrael on his shoulders. But uh, he made it his business to make sure to check on her. So one time he went for a visit, and he walked into the house, and right away he just it smelled terrible. So he starts you know, saying, Hi, I just wanted to say Shalom Aleichem. I wanted to come and visit a little bit. And he walks in, he sees his aunt in, in a compromised state that he's never seen before. She's laying in bed. The, the bed is filthy. She, she could barely move, she could barely speak. And he starts to get teary-eyed. Like, what, what, what can I do? And assuming that she would be totally bitter and depressed and just saying how she wants to die, she says, I'm very content. So Yehuda Leibdiskin, surprised by that response, why? <laughs> this is so difficult. And she says, see the window? There's a window across from her bed. She says, there's a very nice young lady that comes in a couple times a week, and she changes my bed, and she washes me off, and then she opens the window. And I could hear from, there's a, there's a base madrash, there's a shul right across the street, it's a minion factory, they're davening and saying, Amen, Yehishmei Rabbah. And I can hear the davening and I say, Amen, Yehishmei Rabbah. I just look forward to those couple days a week where I could daven. I'm mole simcha. Right, so that's an extreme. <laughs> that's an extreme. And we're nowhere close to there. But people do wonder, and I've been asked the question, how is it possible to maintain a simcha sachayim when life can be so incredibly turbulent? How is it possible when I'm in, in this stage of life, 
where there is so much unknown and there is so much uncertainty and, 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 and sorrow and there could be loss, how do, you, how do you maintain that simcha? And the only answer is, if we don't start before we get to that point, then the likelihood of actually having that joy when there's real turbulence, when the plane really starts to shake, then we have very little chance of feeling that simcha in the future. If we can't appreciate the bracha now, then there's no way we'll appreciate the bracha then. So that's number one. We need to focus on the bracha, and that requires being proactive, that requires being cognizant of what we speak about in the home with our family. We love complaining, and, and we're very good at complaining. But we have to ask ourselves, what do we speak about more of the time? Am I sharing my admiration? Am I sharing my respect? Am I sharing my love for somebody or for something? Or is it always negative? It's always a bittle. I was just exposed recently to something that was so disturbing, I, I can't share it even. But um, I just got a little bit of a sense, a glimpse. There's so much bittle. There's so much of this feeling of needing to be better than everybody, needing to knock down you when what you're doing is really you're wrong and you're cruel. And, you have to be a connoisseur in life and morality. Right? You can't accept anything and everything. But, but we need to be positive people. Otherwise, we have no chance of having Simcha Sakhaim. Number two, and this is our most powerful weapon, I think, in this whole discussion. And it's good, old-fashioned. Bitachon. Faith in God. That's what it gets back to. There's a famous Ibn Ezra where he's bothered by the question. He says, many people are troubled by the 10th of the Yeseros Adibros. The Torah says, Lo sachmod. We're not allowed to covet. We can't be jealous of our neighbors, of what they have and what we don't have. Says the Ibn Ezra, number 16, How is it humanly possible not to look at something that looks really tempting and attractive and to say, you know what? I don't care. I don't need that. I'm fine with my jalopy. I don't even like that car anyway. I'm lying to myself. I would love that car. It has AC in the seats, right? Do you know how amazing that would be in Florida? How is it possible not to be jealous of something that looks so enticing? So he gives the famous marshal, the famous analogy of a villager. The villager sees one day the whole entourage of the king, and he sees the princess. And the princess happens to be very beautiful. Says the Ibn Ezra, Assuming this villager is a bar seichel, he has his head on straight, is he going to have a massive desire or longing for the princess? No. Why not? Because he realizes that we're in different worlds. It's not shayich, it's not realistic, it's so distant from where I am, it's not going to be something that's on my mind. I'm not going to have that longing. So too writes the Ibn Ezra, we don't have a taiva, we don't have a jealousy of birds. Right? Why is it that they could fly and they're soaring around hundreds of feet in the sky and here I am just walking along, I can't even walk that well, I would love to fly. Why don't we have that jealousy? Because we know I'm not a bird, it's a different species. It's something that's totally rachok, it's, it's not me. I'm not jealous. Listen to these words of the Ibn Ezra. He says, It's based on the same philosophy that one who has seichel, I'm not going to feel jealous. 
I'm not going to covet something that you have. Why? Because I know that if a Kaddish Baruch Hu gave me this situation in life, and, and these particular surroundings, and this family structure, and this level of Parnassa, and He gave you something different, then you're the bird, and I'm a different species. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving me exactly what I need, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving you exactly what you need. I wish I could need what He needs, but that's not the reality. And therefore, if I have that bitachon, if I have that, that recognition that everything is orchestrated by the infinite creator of the universe, that has no connection to me, and therefore I'm not jealous of what you have. Al-Kain, therefore, who yismach b'chelko, that allows me to experience real simcha, to be happy with what I have, and not to have that, that nagging feeling of wanting something that doesn't belong to me. So we have four reasons why we want, why we have great expectations. The only real solution we have is to realize, to focus on the bracha, and to get back to good old-fashioned bitachon. It's not meant for me, I cherish what I have, and I hope he cherishes what he has. There's another area in life, we're going to end with this, where great expectations will not lead to disappointment, but they're required and they're a prerequisite for achieving real greatness. That's when it comes to spirituality. When it comes to spirituality, it's a whole different mindset. Tana de Be'eliyohu, these are teachings that go back to Eliyohu Hanavi, we have the famous line of Chazal, Shekol echad ve'echad mi'Yisrael, that every Jew is obligated, Chayiv Lomar, to ask himself, When will my actions, when will my behavior, when will my conduct be something similar to my ancestors, Tavrom, Yitzchak, and Yaakov? When can I be closer to someone like Reb Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg? When can I be a mensch, something similar to Rishlomo Zalman Arabach? When can I be a Balas Chesed, somebody getting close to Rebetz and Kanievsky? Now, realistically speaking, am I ever going to become as great as they are? Probably not. But Chayiv Adam Lomer, we're obligated to always ask ourselves, when am I going to get there? We have to have great expectations for what we can and what we must achieve. And in contrast to how I view my home or my car, right, we said, just because other people have it, it doesn't mean that I need it. I have to fight against that. And if I have what everyone else has, okay, I should be, uh, I should be content. I should be satisfied. But when it comes to spirituality, we say the exact opposite. Just because you're doing what everyone else is doing, I'm on par. Right? People are pretty much davening three times a day, and I'm, I'm doing what they're doing. And, and they're koveya itim, they're able to carve out time for learning, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes a day, and I'm also doing that. So it's very easy to become complacent. If I'm doing what everyone else is doing, then I'm making it. And if I'm doing a little bit better, then I'm really making it. Says the Mishnah Perkyavos, in a place where there are no men, you must strive to be a man. What does that mean? Says the Rebbe Yonah, an amazing interpretation. The Rebbe Yonah says, if you look around and you see that you're pretty much 
doing what everyone else is doing. Al timna milechakim. Don't allow that to stop you from growing wiser. Don't allow that to stop you from learning more. And even if I get to the point where there's no one in my city who I feel is my caliber of chachma, of, 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 of uh, scholarship, don't stop there. Because it's not about you thinking you know more than somebody else. That doesn't define your greatness as the Talmud Chacham. Even if you look around your generation and my name happens to be Rav Moshe Feinstein and I feel pretty confident I'm probably the best in the generation. Says there Ben Yonah. Don't let that stop you either. That happens to be parenthetically if we do think we're the best in our generation we have other problems, okay? <laughs> but even if you really are the best... Envision yourself sitting at the table with Abaye and Rava and Shmuel, the authors of the Talmud. And if that doesn't do it for you, you've even attained that level of scholarship, then picture Moshe Rabbeinu, and you should always be asking the question of the ton of the Beliohu, Masai When will I reach their level? When will I have that ability to keep on pushing? When can I wake up a little bit earlier so I can get another 15 minutes of learning in? I can't allow myself to, 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 to be complacent. Right? So it sounds like there's two extremes. When it comes to my level of simcha sachayim, am I happy? Am I content? Am I satisfied? Don't have great expectations. Appreciate what we have. Cherish the relationships. Cherish the people. When it comes to my spiritual pursuits, we need to have great expectations. But the Gra adds one very important caveat. The Gra says that when it comes to Torah, when it comes to growing as a human being, the goal is to be sameach bechelko, to be happy with what I've achieved, velom mistapik bechelko, but not complacent with what I've achieved. Right? So if you, if you don't take this hashkafa with a balance, You'll end up always feeling negative about yourself because I need to be doing more and I'm not davening with enough kavana and I'm not learning with enough hasmada and intensity and therefore I'm just a loser. The goal is not to view yourself as, as a loser. You have to be sameach bechelko. I'm happy with where I am in life because I've come from a far distance but I'm not mistapic. I'm not content. When it comes to my house and my car and my parnasa and my life, I am mistapic. I am content. Great expectations. We need them, and we have to stay far away from them. We should be zochet to have them where we need them, and not to have them when we don't need them.